Go. Welcome to Lifelines Radio, a production of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation and JMJ Radio. I'm your host, Maria Gallagher, Legislative Director of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. With me today is Brett Atterbury, author of a fascinating pro-life book called Your Pro-Life Bottom Line. Welcome, Brett. Hi, Maria. Thank you for having me. It's so good to be with you today, and, and uh, I've read your book, and it's fascinating, so um, we'll be eager to get through that. But first of all, I want to ask you, how did you come to hold your pro-life beliefs? Yeah, thank you, Maria. Um, that's an interesting story. I am not a Christian, or I wasn't raised Christian, and as a matter of fact, didn't even become a Christian for almost the first 40 years of my life. And then when I was around 39, I had somewhat of a mystical experience and decided I need to do something about that. So I started going to church. I lived in Philadelphia at the time, outside of Philadelphia. And then a good friend of mine uh, who was, uh, when I grew up in Oklahoma City, he was Catholic, and I told him about what was going on with me. And he said, hey, have you considered the Catholic faith? And I was like, well, no, but I'm open to it. And so... Uh, he suggested I go to a nearby Catholic church, and I did. And uh, after learning a bit about that, I decided to become Catholic and came into the church at the Easter Vigil on uh, April 10th, 2004. So that was kind of the beginning, and of course, I needed to learn about all the church teachings, and and one of the very important teachings is on life. And uh, that really was kind of the beginning of me starting to understand what pro-life is, and uh, of course, I embraced that teaching and um, kind of took off from there. Wonderful. Now, why did you decide to become involved in the pro-life movement? Yeah, so so I became Catholic 2004. I, I read the, the teachings on life, and, uh, you know, it, it kind of caused a problem for me in the I was very young, just a teenager. Uh, my, my girlfriend got pregnant, and together we decided that uh, she would have an abortion, and she did. Now, not being a believer at the time, you know, I was so young, it didn't really affect me that much, but now here I am decades later, a Christian, uh, learning about the church's teachings on life, and I was like, oh boy, uh, I've got that, that history back there. And it really started to bother me, Maria. I, I always believed that God had forgiven me for that, and this took a period of years. But there was just something that wasn't right, and I, I couldn't figure out what it was. And, and years later, I started going to the March for Life in Washington, D.C., and that started affecting me. And, and I, I thought, you know, do I have a case of concupiscence here? You know, do, do I believe that God didn't forgive me for that? And, and every time I came around to that, I was like, no, I know he forgave me, so I'm not quite sure what was going on. And then one day I was driving home, and I was listening to Catholic radio, and there was an advertisement for a Rachel's Vineyard retreat for abortion healing. And I guess the Holy Spirit just showed up at that moment because I was like, I need to call them and just talk about what's going on with me and see if perhaps this could help. So somehow I remembered the number that they said during the radio commercial. I get home, I run upstairs, I call the retreat director, I talk with her a little bit, and I said, first of all, do you think this will help? 
She said, yes. And then I said, second of all, do you take men at these retreats? Because I didn't know. And she goes, absolutely. So two weeks later, I was at a um, abortion, a Rachel's Vineyard abortion healing retreat at Our Lady of Chestahova in Doylestown, PA. And that was kind of the turning point that uh, changed my life when I realized that um, what was the problem I was having is that I just didn't look back at that abortion that had happened so long ago and think of that as my child. And during that retreat, that was the real healing that took place for me is, is to come to understand that, yes, that's my child. And from that moment, um, it really began to, to heal my heart and my child, who I named Jesse. Uh, I've, I've always felt from that moment was with me even you know, to this very moment. And there was a wonderful, a wonderful time during that retreat where I got to be uh, with Jesus alone in the Blessed Sacrament, and I just looked right at Jesus, and I said, Look, Lord, you've given me so many talents and, and so many experiences. Thank you for that. If there's any way you can use me somehow to help young women and young men not make that same mistake that I made so long ago, please, Lord, use me. And, well, I guess you could say that the Lord definitely heard my prayer and he uh, moved in my life, you know, a couple, even just a couple years after that. I was uh, hired to run marketing for Heroic Media, a pro-life organization that at that time was in Austin, now in Dallas. And that's really the story of how I got involved in this. And I think you are a prime example of how an individual who has suffered the tragedy of abortion, who has been wounded by abortion, can find hope and healing and can become a passionate uh, proclaimer of life. Yeah, I agree. Uh, as we know many times, you have to experience, as you were suggesting, the suffering of something before you truly understand at the depths, like how that affects people. And when you decide to actually do something about it, to advocate or to try to change the situation, you bring a passion to it because you've experienced it yourself. Do you remember where you were when you found out that Roe versus Wade had been overturned? I sure do. Uh, it's a bit of an odd story. I, I live in Dallas now. I was actually up in Oklahoma City uh, where I grew up, and I was driving around with a representative of a company that does billboards along highways and things like that. And the reason I was there, we can talk about that in a second, is there's a uh, there's an alternative to abortion organization that was uh, looking to put up billboards in the city. And I just happened to be driving around, and one of my colleagues uh, from Heroic Media, Karen Garnett, she texted me, and I don't remember exactly what the words were, but it was something to the effect of, it's over. <laughs> it happened. You know, we'd all been waiting for weeks for that, right? It's like every time we'd pull up the Supreme Court schedule and see what was scheduled to happen, and, you know, it would pass, and it would pass, and it would pass, and suddenly there it was. So, like everyone, I, I just had, like, this unbelievable uh, feeling, emotions. And as I said to my, my colleague Karen, who's been involved in pro-life for, you know, decades, for those that have been involved for so long, it must have just been such an incredible experience, um, almost surreal, when that in years. But for those that have been involved for so long, uh, what, a, what a wonderful relief and just to have that victory in hand. 
I know that I've been involved in a, with, uh, with the pro-life movement for a long time. And when the decision came down, I was overcome with emotion. And I, mm. I was very surprised that I actually started to cry. And I mm. think they were tears of joy and relief mm. um, that finally this, this, ter- this terrible, terrible decision that had been made had been overturned. Mm. And it was just incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it was a beautiful moment. Um, you know, hopefully now that so many, uh, you know, it's returned to the states, um, and as we all know, many states, including there in Pennsylvania, future will have more state rulings like that, uh, overturning the terrible laws that, abortion laws that are in effect, and I guess it's about half a state, half of the states where they're still in effect. Why did you decide to write your new book? Yeah, that's an interesting story. Uh, a few years ago, I learned about an organization that provides alternatives to abortion that had defeated Planned Parenthood, like on the front lines. And, and this organization is called Thrive Express Women's Healthcare in St. Louis. I write about them in the book. And my book is essentially kind of reverse engineering the process that they used and then I was very fortunate as I started to analyze it that the, the way they did that was through marketing. And since I bring a, a background of professional marketing <laughs> into the equation, I felt that I, I had the authority to be able not just to, to describe what they did, but also to talk about it from a marketing perspective and try to educate people to understand that you can use marketing um, to defeat Planned Parenthood. So that's, that's really what the book is about. And I realized, um, having worked in this now for, for close to a decade, that there are so many wonderful pro-life organizations out there, great work. Um, many have impact. It's wonderful. They, they measure things, and they can show that they help save lives from, abor- from abortion. But for me, uh, what Thrive did in St. Louis was, was kind of like a whole nother level, and it tied directly back into that wish that I had, you know, when I asked Jesus, at the, uh, at the Rachel's Vineyard retreat to use me in some way so that women, all women, would not make the same mistake, you know, that I had made when I was a teenager. And the way I looked at it, it was like, here's an organization that did exactly that. They, they took so many clients away from Planned Parenthood in St. Louis that that Planned Parenthood finally just decided to shut their doors and leave. And I was like, People in pro-life need to hear about this because they need to see that there is a proven plan to defeat Planned Parenthood. And so I talk about that in in the first and second part of the book. And in the third part of the book, being a a businessman by background, I I basically suggest investing in expansion of this kind of model because the way I looked at it is if you you have a, a successful business at the local level, and it does very well, and it's very profitable. You know, a lot of times the owners of the business or the investors in the business want to grow that. And one of the ways they grow it is they basically copy the successful model and duplicate it in other places. And I'm sitting here thinking, that's exactly what, you know, Thrive's going to do. Take that, take that marketing model uh, based on very strong advertising and duplicate that in other cities. And so in the third part of my book, I basically – I basically laid out a plan for how pro-lifers can invest in that. And the whole idea is you just want to do in other cities what Thrive achieved in St. Louis. 
use advertising to resonate with young women so that over time, those young women replace Planned Parenthood in their minds as their preferred uh, women's health care provider, replace that with Thrive. And the advertising works well because it achieves that before, and that's the key, it achieves that before the young women even need the service. So that in the future, if they become unexpectedly pregnant, the first healthcare provider that's in their mind is not Planned Parenthood, it's Thrive. And so when they reach out to Thrive, then Thrive can use their excellent processes um, to, to work with those women, encourage them, empower them. And many times women, when they receive that kind of love and compassion and they understand that the team at Thrive really is, is walking with them, is on their side and wants them to achieve great things in life and self-fulfillment and joy and all that, they'll change their minds about abortion and they'll choose life. And I just, through the book, I just wanted to get that message out there to people. And I think what is really interesting about this book is that it's very down-to-earth and you make references to a popular television show, Shark Tank. Tell me why you decided to use that in the book. Yeah, as a, as a businessman, as an investor, I've always loved that show. <laughs> and because it kind of, what, what it does is, even in, in business proposals, there's a lot of noise and, you know, all kinds of distractions. And, and what the Shark Tank investors are very good at is getting down to making those businesses prove through metrics that they're going to be extremely profitable. Otherwise, why would the sharks even invest in them? And so I kind of think of this as an extreme example. And I, I did a talk not too long ago, and I, when I was talking about investing in expanding the Thrive model to other cities, and I said, look, imagine you're on Shark Tank, and you were given, let's say, a million dollars, and you could only invest it in one pro-life strategy. And so now, just like in Shark Tank, we're going to bring all these organizations before you, and they're going to tell you why you should invest a million dollars in them. And here comes Thrive with what they achieved in St. Louis. And Thrive is the only one on that Shark Tank show that can tell you that they moved so many clients away from Planned Parenthood over to Thrive that Planned Parenthood basically shut down and went out of business. And so I basically asked the audience, with that being the opportunity, which organization would you invest in? Because it's the only strategy I've seen that goes that far, that doesn't just have incremental wins of taking clients from Planned Parenthood, that actually eventually takes so many away from them. You're listening to Lifelines Radio. I'm your host, Maria Gallagher. We are recorded by the good folks at JMJ Radio, and we're talking with author Brett Atterbury. Brett, how do pregnancy resource centers empower women? Thank you, Maria. That's a great question. Um, First of all, there are lots of pregnancy centers uh, across the country, and they all do great work. They all have uh, passionate uh, people, you know, team members, uh, board members, investors who support that work. Uh, they're, they, they focus on two things. Many of them focus on two things. One, of course, 
is saving lives from abortion. The other is empowering women. Uh, it starts with the basics. Usually a woman in this situation is so afraid, she's looking for some basic help at first. Usually that consists of material needs, like um, how is she going to pay rent if uh, she loses her job? What kind of uh, material needs does she have to support her child, et cetera, et cetera. But as I point out in the book, that's a good start, but it's not enough to, to move many women away from an abortion decision to life. What most young women are looking for, I'll say all young women are looking for, is not really different from what any of us is looking for, and that is they just want to have a joy-filled life. They want to fulfill, they want to understand, they want to fulfill their purpose in life. They want to do great things. And so the pregnancy centers that really set themselves apart are the ones that go beyond just material needs and really start to think about, for example, if this young woman is a college student and she's concerned that she won't be able to finish her college education and move on in her career, how do we, what do we do for her so that she can go ahead? She can, she can go ahead and carry her pregnancy to term and either, um, create an adoption plan, or even, you know, raise her child. What can we do to help her so that she can go ahead and finish her education? And her caring to term is a positive part of that. How do we show her that? To me, that's, that's the difference between just providing material resources versus really an, empowering a woman, is trying to understand where they're going in their lives and what can the center do in order to, to help her achieve that. What new challenges does the post-Roe era present? Yeah, this is a great one. Um, I realize as I, as I talk to a lot of pro-lifers out there, there's a, it's changing, but there's not a broad, deep awareness of the transformation of the abortion industry from procedures that happen at facilities to moving over to the Internet where the abortion industry and Planned Parenthood are essentially going to more and more become an Internet business that distributes the abortion pill, the two pills, to women so that women can conduct an abortion through those pills in the privacy of their, of their own homes. I can't tell you how important this is for pro-lifers to understand because this is, from Planned Parenthood's perspective, this is kind of the ace up their sleeves. And what I mean by that is that, that distribution business of abortion pills from Planned Parenthood's perspective essentially means that they believe, and I believe they're right for the most part, that they can circumvent any laws that put restrictions on abortions even laws that say, hey, like here in Texas, where mail-order abortion is illegal. Because I would argue, and I know that Planned Parenthood executives know this, if we all look back at the success of the so-called war on drugs, well, it has been anything but a success. And the reason why is it is so difficult to police the movement of little pills uh, through various means uh, through mail or through other means. And Planned Parenthood knows this and say they know that even in states where it's abortion is illegal, they know women 
can still get the abortion pills through mail or have friends in abortion legal states get the pills and ship them in, you know, kind of clandestinely to their friends in abortion illegal states. This is something I, I just I, I can tell when I talk with pro-lifers they just haven't come to terms with yet because for decades it was about, you know, let's shut down Planned Parenthood and, and Planned Parenthood is out there and they have these facilities. And so we go, well, facilities are pretty easy to police, right, because you can see women going in and women going out. So it's pretty easy to enforce a law when it's at a, at a place, at a, you know, having an abortion procedure at a certain day on a certain time done by a certain person. But it is almost impossible to police the movement of abortion pills. And already, and, and it shocks some pro-lifers when I tell them this, already this year, uh, more than half of abortions in our country will be by the abortion pill. And now, with uh, the overturn of Roe v. Wade, that is forecasted to increase dramatically so that even probably by the end of next year or the year after that, it's going to be somewhere in the range of maybe 80 to 90 percent of all abortions in our country will be by the abortion pill. This is a, a huge challenge for the pro-life movement, and I know many of the pro-life leaders are aware of it and are thinking about you know, how to... to uh, how to counteract this, but I don't believe most pro-lifers um, who support uh, with time, talent, and treasure, many across the country aren't aware of this reality yet. So this, I think, is the biggest challenge we have in front of us. How is the pro-life movement also pro-woman? Yeah, the, the pro-life is it's just wonderful when you think about it. You know, Christians, um, are all about the dignity of the human being made in the image and likeness of God and, and how we empower humans. And as we do that, it accrues to the good, the common good of our culture. And so the pro-life movement is an integral part of that because when we look at this, you know, if I look at it from a pregnant woman's perspective who is thinking about abortion, the pro-abortion forces tell her that she can't succeed or she can't be who she wants to become unless she takes the life of another human being. And as I write about in my book, it's a, that's a, a standard approach of win-lose. In other words, someone else has to lose in order for you to get what you want. It's a complete uh, contradiction to the dignity of the human being made in the image and likeness of God. Obviously, the pro-life movement um, completely counters that and says, no, um, what we're looking for here, if I could put it in secular terms, is win-win. In other words, when you make a decision that helps someone else win, that increases their dignity to a human being, and in this case, it's just a, affirming a basic right to life. When you, when you affirm that human being growing in your womb, that they have a right to life, and you affirm that human dignity, that accrues to the common good of the culture. And the way I talk about it is if you do that at scale, in other words, millions and millions of women are no longer choosing abortion, and they're choosing the win-win scenario, life for their children. I think at scale what happens is, is that starts to change the culture because, in my mind, that starts to heal the family, and if you start to heal the family, I think you solve 
many of the ills that we have in our culture, in our own country, and around the world. How does abortion impact men? Yeah, well, that's something that I can certainly talk about. Um, when, when I look, when I speak about my own experience in abortion, whether a woman or a man, it's always a personal experience. But I think in general for men, and I'm, I'm drawing from my own case, when, when I was at the abortion healing retreat, what kind of surprised me is, is when it came my turn to tell my story about what had happened, I wasn't, I wasn't planning to say this, but what came out of my mouth was that I felt terrible that I had failed my girlfriend. I had failed to protect my girlfriend and obviously had failed to protect my child. So I think it's innate in men to want to be protectors and providers. And when a man uh, supports an abortion, whether it's uh, abortion of his own child or supporting the abortion of someone else, they're basically, we're basically foregoing that role and, and not uh, protecting and not providing. And I think that does significant damage to a man's character and weakens him. And so only through, uh, first of all, repentance of that and then healing and then hopefully men that have been through it have the courage to stand up and talk about it so that other young men can learn that, that is, um, that's not the path to take. And how can people find out more about you and your book? Well, the best way to do that is to go to my website. Uh, it's brettattaberry.com. That's spelled B-R-E-T-T-A-T-T-E-B-E-R-Y.com. That's wonderful. And we've got just about a minute left, and I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts to share with our audience. Yeah, I would, uh, I would simply say this is an exciting time. Uh, it's a bit chaotic because uh, Roe versus Wade certainly kind of uh, upset the, what had become kind of the standard year-by-year, year, uh, basically kind of uh, what was happening year-by-year on both the pro-abortion side and the pro-life side, and now that's been completely uh, turned on its head. I encourage uh, pro-lifers to, to take a deeper look at the front-line battles, particularly around um, organizations that provide alternatives to abortion, organizations that compete directly against Planned Parenthood for clients. I think ultimately uh, winning there is how we win the war against Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry. The book is Your Pro-Life Bottom Line, written by Brett Atterbury. Brett, thank you so much for being on the program today. Maria, thank you very much. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Lifelines Radio. I'm Maria Gallagher, Legislative Director of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. Thank you for joining us. It's been an honor. And remember, there is always a reason to choose life. See you next time. Take care, everybody. Have a good week.